Good morning, everyone. Good story. When we're continuing today in the series that Marty started a few weeks ago, he told us that the word for our church this year is going to be the word develop. And uh, he told us at that time that what we need to do is put ourselves in a place where we can be developed individually, and then we need to put ourselves in a place where we can develop other people around us as well. So today we're going to continue with that, but we're going to look at it from a slightly different angle. Uh, The weeks in between then and now, various ministries have shared how they develop uh, people. Today we're going to look at how we develop from life experiences. Everybody has life experiences, right? Some of us develop through them, and sometimes we don't. What makes the difference? And how we end up as uh, angry old people or not often depends on how we handle these experiences. So I want to tell you first about a few people that I met, uh, that I knew when I was growing up. I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania by the name of Shoemakersville. No, they didn't make shoes, they made underwear. And they made lots of underwear. There were three factories in the town that made underwear. I don't know why they didn't call it Skivvyville. I guess they didn't like that name. Um, I lived right near the center of town, halfway up the first block from the center of town, and three houses up from me lived an old lady who was mean to us. Uh, No other way to put it. I'm five, six, seven years old. And her house looked eerily strange. It was dark. It had a porch all across the front. And there was an awning that hung way over the porch that made it look even darker. Almost like one of those horror movie kind of places. And she would sit out there on the porch in the summertime when it was nice. And us kids, we're walking down the sidewalk. We want to go to visit our friends who are on the other side of her house. She would see us coming. She'd get up with that mean look in her face and start walking toward us like she's going to get us. We were scared. We stopped, turned around, and ran the other way. And we'd keep watching for when she wasn't there, but she was always there. So we put roller skates on, figuring she'll never catch us then, right? So we go trucking up there. She heard us coming. The skates were so loud, she heard us coming. And she moved faster than I thought that old woman ever could move. And she came down after us again. I'm telling you, us kids, we knew she ate little kids like us. Well, across the street from her was another couple named the Heckmans. Uh, They were also retirement age. They had a store up at the other end of town. But when they weren't in the store, they were sitting on their porch. And they always looked miserable. I don't ever remember them smiling. Now, they lived in a double house. They lived on the left side. On the right side of the house was my best friend, Jean. So I was over there all the time. They never talked to us. The only sounds we ever heard coming from their side of the porch was usually swearing. Contrast those people that I just told you about with something the scriptures say in several verses in, well, for, for one, Proverbs sixteen thirty one, It says, Gray hair is a crown of splendor. It is attained in the way of righteousness. Or Job twelve twelve. Is not wisdom found among the aged? 
Does not long life bring understanding? He's talking about the the many experiences that older people can have. The older you are, the more experiences you have. Supposedly, the more wisdom you're going to gain from it. Kind of like that insurance commercial that you see on TV. We uh, know a few things because we've seen a few things, right? You're supposed to learn through all of this. But then look at this verse in Leviticus 19.32. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man. And you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Wow. Combining honor for older people with the fear of the Lord? You better honor them or fear the Lord, you know. It's like a significant thing. That seems out of step with the people that I just shared with you about. There's a, there's a disconnect there somewhere. Doesn't seem to match up, does it? Well, what I'd like to do is look at how we can not end up, through taking the experiences of life in the right way, not end up like those old people who were miserable. But I think we need to pray about that. Would you bow your head with me and let's pray. Lord, I thank you for Psalm 71, the psalm that we're going to look at today. I pray as we do that your spirit would settle over each of our hearts. Speak to us where we need to hear. Help us, motivate us to act, to make any changes that your Spirit tells us that we need to make. Uh, Lord, uh, without your presence, none of this would be possible, so we're totally dependent on you, and we trust that you will do what's necessary in each of our hearts because you love us. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I said life experiences can shape us. I don't know what the experiences of those people from Shoemakersville might have been. Uh, No doubt the way they treated us kids had something to do with some of the experiences they'd had previously in their lives. I I don't know. Life experiences can help us grow into the godly people that the Scriptures speak about. Or they can also lead us into a very self-focused life that ends up helping us have a very unhappy retirement. So what makes the difference? Just having experiences doesn't mean we automatically grow through them. Some people have lots of experiences, but they remain immature children, even into their 60s, 70s, 80s, and I've even known some in their 90s. And they're often the ones who become the angry old people that we all go watch movies about, right? Angry old men. Uh, often uh, that's what can happen. None of us want to grow, grow up to be that kind of a person in our old age. But you've got to realize this one thing. If you don't want to do that, realize this fact. You will be then what you are becoming now. You will be when you're old. You will be then what you're becoming now. Uh, If you're becoming that kind of person now, I mean, it's all about how we handle these life experiences now, which is why I put in your main idea, we develop through life experiences. And Psalm 71 uh, gives us an idea of how we can do that. I need to give you a little background in Psalm 71. Um, Many people believe David is the one who wrote that psalm, and not everybody agrees with that, but I'll buy into that for today. David was an older man when he wrote that psalm, and he was having an experience, a bad experience. His son, Absalom, was trying to kill him. 
He was seeking his life. Absalom wanted to be king, so he deposed him. He got the entire country to follow him, and David runs out of Jerusalem, crosses the Jordan River, and he's living out in the wilderness, doesn't know what's going to happen. Here he is, an old man, and his son is after him, trying to kill him. He amasses this huge army, and he comes after him to kill him. And in the middle of that experience, David writes this psalm very significant things in here. He goes through six different stages as he deals with this uh, experience. I'm going to lay them out for you, just tell you what they are, and then we'll look at them in more detail. First, David cries out to God. Uh, Secondly, he takes some time, steps back, and remembers who God is. Uh, Thirdly, that brings hope into his heart, into his life, which then brings confidence into his life. And when he has confidence, uh, uh, which uh, it brings um, a sharing, a proclaiming of God to other people, the more he does that, it brings confidence into his life. And and then that brings praise out from his lips. So those six things we're going to take a quick look at. And as you can see, there are two points in your outline. The first three things here, the first three stages... David goes through are all focused on his relationship with God. So in point number one, I put down develop a walk with God now, because that's really what David was doing. The last three stages that David went through really focus outward toward other people, which is why in point two, I put develop a relationship of community and service. So if that's all clear, I hope it's all clear, we'll go on and look at them in more detail. First, I said he cried out to God, and I see that beginning in verse 1. It says there, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me, rescue me. Remember what's happening now. He's fearing his life. Incline your ear to me. Save me, O God. Be to me a rock of refuge to which I may continually come. You have given the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of the unjust and the cruel man. Very difficult experience David is going through here, isn't it? I certainly wouldn't want to trade places with him. Isn't it true? The experiences we grow through the most are often the most difficult experiences in our lives. There's a man who is a pastor down in uh, he's of Southeast Christian Church in Kentucky, Kyle Eidelman, wrote a book called The End of Me. He once posted on Facebook this statement and asked people to complete the statement. He said, finish this sentence. Jesus became real when blank. He got hundreds of answers back. Here are some of them. Jesus became real when I found out my husband was having an affair and I never felt more alone in my life. Jesus became real when it became clear I had lost control of my addiction. Jesus became real when my depression became too much for me to bear. Jesus became real when I was forced out of my 30-year job and had no idea what I was going to do. Jesus became real when I finally admitted 
I wasn't strong enough to save my marriage or end my addiction to porn. We grow far more through difficult experiences than we do from other experiences. And of course, the Bible makes that clear all the way through the Bible. We're told that. For instance, in Ecclesiastes 7, we're told, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting, and the living will lay it to heart. In other words, that tough experience of losing someone, yeah, those who survive that, those who live that, they learn from that. They grow, they develop through that experience. Now, most people, when they get in trouble, cry out to God. Everybody does that, right? I'm in trouble. Oh, God, help me, right? We, every, whether you're a believer or not a believer, everybody does that. So step one that David takes is not a strange step to take. But a lot of people stop right there. David takes this, goes into the second stage, and what he does is he steps back and he remembers who God is. Take a look with me, beginning in verse 5. You, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. He's remembering back all of the things that he's experienced with God before. Upon you, I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I have been as a portent or a sign to many, but you are my strong refuge. And the more he begins to think about God and remember who God is, he begins to understand this. God is bigger than my problems. And that's always the issue, isn't it, in our difficulties, in our life experiences? Is our experience bigger than God, or is God bigger than our experience? David found comfort in the fact that God was bigger than his experience. Francis Chan is a pastor. He's a second-generation Chinese-American. And uh, he tells how his parents taught him this Chinese prayer when he was a little kid. And he was supposed to pray this at every meal. So he says, uh, I probably prayed this prayer more than 5,000 times, literally more than 5,000 times. Problem is, when you do something that often, over and over again, it becomes routine. It becomes meaningless. And that's sort of what happened to him. Until one day, he came face to face with who God is. And I want to play a little clip that kind of expresses his experience. He tells about his experience because I think it can help us. He used scripture to do it. And maybe that's something that you and I can do. Take a look at this video. In fact, I remember one time, and this was the stupidest thing. I remember being in junior high, and I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed that I believed in God, and was embarrassed to pray, but I knew oh, we're at lunch, and we were at this amusement park. It was a field trip. I still remember it. We were at this place called Great America, and a bunch of my friends were at this table. We got our, <laughs> our food and, and our drinks, and, and I'm thinking, i got to pray before I eat, but I don't want anyone to see me. And so I still remember dropping my fork on purpose, just so that I could bend over and pick it up. And on my way down, I'd be like, and no one would notice. And then I could eat my food. It's like, oh, good, it's blessed now. And 
you, you've probably not, you probably haven't done anything that stupid, but I think we all get into some sort of routine in our prayers to where it can become meaningless. Um, whether it's before meals or maybe you have a, a morning devotional time and you, you almost just sink into this prayer mode without thinking about what you're doing. And, and I think it hit me when I was in high school one time I was at this kind of Christian retreat and early in the morning I, I got up to pray and have my you know devotional time with God. And I remember sitting down, started to pray, started to read, and then I looked across the field and I saw the camp speaker, the guy that was giving all the messages that week. And he was across the field and he was praying and reading. And for some reason in my mind, I, I started thinking, I bet you he prays differently than I do. Because, you know, as a kid, you look up to these guys that are at the pulpit and you think, wow, he's the speaker, he's the pastor. He must have such an amazing relationship with God. So I thought to myself, I bet you he prays differently. I bet you he is so close to God when he prays. I bet you he really thinks that he's in the presence of God. And so I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to pray like that this time. And I actually pictured myself speaking to someone, speaking to God. And it's weird, but I realized up until that point, I don't think I ever considered the fact that I was speaking to a person when I was praying. It became this routine or ritual to me. And so it began this pattern in my life where I thought, you know what, I want to think about him every time I pray. I want to think about who I'm speaking to because it makes such a difference. And and what was crazy was the more I studied the scriptures and the more I read the Bible and I would read these descriptions of God, the more it would change my prayer life because I would picture God differently. I would see him differently. It's, it's like I, I remember when I first studied Revelation chapter 4 and I read John's description of God, of what it was like when he was in heaven. And he talks about how he saw this being sitting on this throne, but he said he, he's not like a normal flesh and blood person. He's, he's like diamonds and rubies and he's glowing and there's lightning and there's fire and there's thunder and there's a hundred million angels. And, and so it was such a massive picture of God that after reading that passage, I remember closing my eyes and thinking, okay, I'm about to approach him. I'm about to come before him and speak to him. And so I close my eyes and I picture this being who's sitting on the throne and he's glowing with diamonds and rubies and he's, he's unapproachable light and there's lightning, thunder, fire and angels all around. And then I pictured myself coming before that being and speaking to him. And it was like, I didn't even know what to say. And these words came out of my mouth. Like, it's such an honor to come into your presence. And but I just, ever since that day that I read that passage and prayed, I thought to myself, I would never have said those words if I didn't take that 30 seconds to think about him. And I want you to consider, I mean, what would be the first words, literally, the first words out of your mouth the moment you saw God in all of his glory? What would come out of your mouth? See, and that's what should come out of our mouths when we pray. Because what we're doing is we're coming before that God and speaking to him. So when we remember God, 
in that way, it becomes he's, he's a real living person. And that does something to us, which leads David in this psalm to the next stage of his experience. And that is hope comes into his heart. You see that here in verse 14. I will hope continually. Now, you got to picture this. Through the whole psalm, if you read the psalm right from the beginning, first it's all about him. It's all about his difficulty. It's all about the problem. Cry out, God, God, come help me. All of a sudden, there's 180 U-turn, and he's got hope. How's that happen? How can that happen for you? How can that happen for me in our experiences? Remembering God, remembering who He really is, does something inside of us. It changes our hearts. It can bring hope to our hearts. That's what David is experiencing here. It brings hope and encouragement. And that's not a strange theme throughout the whole Bible either. If you look even in the New Testament, in Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul says, uh, beginning in verse 3 of chapter 5, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces what? Character. That's development. We're developing through this experience. And it really starts with remembering who God is in the middle of it. And character does, produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. Now, he mentions hope there. You know there's more than one kind of hope. There's the uh, wishful thinking kind of hope. That's a student who gets D's and F's all through school. He gets to graduation day and says, I hope to graduate. I submit to you that's wishful thinking. Ain't going to happen. But you take a 4.0 student who has that grade point average every semester, and he gets to graduation day and says, I hope to graduate. It's an assured thing. It's going to happen. And that's why we, that's how the scriptures use the word hope. So when you read a passage like Hebrews 6, it says, We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It speaks of the promises of God. And God is behind it. And that's an assured thing. So when God brings hope to our hearts, there's no doubt about it. We may not know how it's going to turn out, but we can rest because we hope in Him. Which brings us to point number two. Develop a relationship of community and service with others, especially outside your generation. Now we're focusing outward. Up to this point, it's been all about him, all about his difficulties, all about that. It hinges when he remembers who God is and gets hope. Now he's turning and proclaiming, stage four, proclaiming who God is in the midst of his trouble, in the midst of his trial. He's proclaiming who God is. Look at verse 15. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts. Verse 16, I will remind them of your righteousness. Verse 17, I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. Verse 18, so even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. You see, when a person really has hope, it finds expression somehow. 
whether it's peace showing on the person's face or words spoken about how God is meeting them, they become a walking testimony in the middle of their experience. And I want you to notice in these verses that we just looked at, they're all about God. He's, he's talking about your acts, your righteousness, your deeds, your might, your power. The whole focus has changed outward to who God is. And that, when, when, he, when he does that, um, it, it brings confidence into his heart, which is stage five. Confidence comes into his whole life. It's kind of like when you're in love. The more you talk about the person you love to other people, the more you tend to love that person. It's the same thing. When you have hope in your heart and you're talking about this God who's given you the hope, it brings confidence into your heart. And when your heart is filled with confidence, like we see in verse 20 and 21, he says there, you will revive me again. You will bring me up again. You will increase my greatness and comfort me again. He has confidence. Somehow or another, God is going to bring him through this circumstance. He gains confidence. And when you have that confidence, what's the end result of that? Stage six, it brings praise coming out of your lips. Verse 22 and 3. I will also praise you with the harp for your faithfulness, O my God. I will sing praises to you with the lyre. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you. So if you look back over David's experience. Yeah, it's a tough spot David is in. So he cries out to God. And then he remembers who God is. Takes the time to step back and focus on who God is. And that brings hope to his heart. And when he has hope in his heart, he starts proclaiming how great God is to all the other people who are around him. He becomes a testimony which brings confidence into his soul and prays out of his lips. That's the stages. Now, I wanted to go back. Well, before we go back, let me just say, people who handle life experiences like this will develop through those life experiences. You don't handle your experiences like that. Your experiences will handle you. Each time you go through this experience and e- this process, with each experience, you grow more and more and more. You become, by the time you reach old age, you become a sage. You know what a sage is? A person who has experienced a lot of different experiences and learned and grown through them and has so much now to share with other people. That's why at FAC here, one of our uh, retirement ministries, we call Sage Builders. That's what we're trying to do in that ministry. We're trying to build people who've gone through, who know how to go through this experience and then can share it with other people. They're sages. It's also, we use it as an acronym, S-A-G-E. Spiritually advancing godly examples. That's a sage, a biblical sage, and that's what we're trying to build. Well, um, you go through this process and you won't end up being a grumpy old person when you grow old. Uh, Remember that statement, you will be then what you're becoming now. Learn how to handle these experiences like this now. It will make you a sweet person that everybody wants to be around then. 
Now, I wanted to go back to verse 18 because there's something in verse 18 that often in our culture we overlook because we have a hard time doing it. Look at verse 18 again. It says, So even to old age and gray hairs, O God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. The proclamation is to other generations. Do you you notice that? That's where we have a hard time. A couple reasons for that. Number one, in our culture, older people are often dismissed, devalued, set on a shelf. It's not that way in some other cultures, like I was talking to Ron Beebe, who went to FASA, Fellowship Alliance South Africa. In South Africa, they love old people. They're telling Ron, bring us more old people. We, they love them. They love the wisdom. They love to talk to them. They love to learn from them. We don't see that in America, do we? So it makes it hard, because nobody wants to listen to the old geezer, Right? A second reason why we have problem doing it in our culture, sharing across the generations, is because for so many years we have siloed the different age groups. We've followed the American educational system in the church. So now we have our children's ministry, we have our youth ministry, we have our young adults, we have our singles ministry, we have our uh, retirement ministry, and there's hardly any cross-pollination between the two. You know... For more than 1,800 years, it wasn't that way in the church. Everybody met together all at the same time. And I'm not proposing that we do that, by the way. But there are people now who are studying these things and are coming to the conclusion we may be missing out on some things. There's some benefits of separating, but I wonder, do we have more problems than we realize because of it. Listen to this man. Joseph Hellerman wrote a book called When the Church Was a Family, Recapturing Jesus' Vision for Authentic Christian Community. Listen to what he wrote. I spent the first 15 years of vocational Christian service involved in specialized ministry to single adults. Now, I find myself with increasing reservations about the wisdom of compartmentalizing God's family into separate fellowship groups according to life stages. Or Mark DeVries wrote a book called Family-Based Youth Ministry. In the book, he asks this question, it's a good question, why aren't we developing more kids with mature faith? His answer The problem was that teens had been systematically separated from adults, isolating them from the very relationships that are most likely to lead them to maturity. Whoa. Dr. Holly Allen is a department head at John Brown University. When she was young, and uh, her family moved to Texas, and they uh, joined a church that had a lot of intergenerational uh, actually the whole church was intergenerational so when they joined a mini church everybody joined the mini church Uh, she and her siblings at, at that time she said they were seven years old nine years old 15 years old they joined this mini church along with their parents and that mini church had uh seniors in it you know up to 80 years old So in looking back at that experience, listen to what her sister wrote about it after she was an adult. 
talking about this intergenerational small group, mini church that she was in. She says, It was so natural sitting with everyone in our intergenerational small groups. I felt like I belonged, like we all belonged there. Age wasn't a factor. We'd all sing songs and pray and do a fun icebreaker. And I participated on every level. Sometimes the group leader would ask me to choose a song or would ask me a a particular question, like maybe how I felt about a certain verse or story in the Bible. And everyone listened to my response. I felt important, like what I had to say mattered. I remember so many of the adults in my small groups, and they were my friends, not just my parents' friends. I remember listening to them talk about what was going on in their lives or what new insights they'd recently had about God, and I felt a sense of intimacy. What a great experience for this kid. And here's the most interesting part about it. Guys who are studying these things are telling us now that kids who grow up in that kind of environment, when they go off to college and university, they don't leave the faith like kids who do not have that experience. After all, think about it. What do psychologists tell us are some of the basic needs of human beings? The need to belong, the need to feel significant, the need to feel competent. Well, those are all things that she said in her story here. She said, I felt like I belonged. I felt important. I mean, what more could a kid want? If she doesn't get it there, where's she gonna get it? Wow. In our church, we recognized a lot of this. And so we're trying to do some cross-pollination. That's why in the ministry I mentioned to you earlier, Sage Builders, we've had a summer game day with Level 5, trying to cross-pollinate the kids, having a game day with them. Another time we had the youth group come in and lead us in worship. Uh, We then had a panel discussion with a panel of youth and a panel of retired folks where we'd ask them all questions just to gain a greater understanding and cross-pollination. We had some fun questions like, what's the cheapest price you ever remember for a gallon of gas? How about you? What's the cheapest you remember? 24 cents? Whoa, you're old, yeah. (laughs) Actually, they beat you. Somebody there said 21. Can you imagine that? And the kids' eyes go, whoa, 21 cents for God. But then we asked some serious questions that helped cross-pollinate. Questions like this. We'd ask the younger people, what do you think older people think about teens your age that's not true? And then we ask the older people, what do you think younger people think about older people like you that's not true? And there were some great answers. And some of these people, well, some of the younger and older people, they developed relationships. They were pen pals. Some of them even got together afterwards and kept, that's the kind of thing that we want to encourage in our church. But it takes a mindset. It takes just a conscious uh, effort 
to help these things to happen. And that's not the only ministry that's doing that. Men's ministry has father-son activities to try and cross-pollinate. Women's ministry, hashtag mom's life, has mentor moms. Children's ministry, family activities like a family VBS. Missions trips cross-pollinate in a great deal, and some of the best friendships are made on these missions trips. The whole point of this is this. We develop better together. All age groups, better together, is what the researchers are telling us now. Well, hey, isn't that what verse 18 in this passage in in chapter 71 is saying? Do you realize in the Bible the word generation occurs over 200 times? It's an important thing to God as well. Well, I didn't realize it, but my experience growing up, uh, I never realized it, how blessed I was until I started studying about this stuff a couple of years ago. Up the street on Main Street, two blocks, lived a man named Guy Madera. Guy had been the postmaster in our town before he retired. And uh, when I came along, he was already retired. He attended our church, and I remember a Sunday night after service, a Wednesday night after prayer meeting, often Guy would come to our house. We'd sit there, we'd have a great time talking, sharing. I'm just a kid, five, six, seven years old at this point, but we had a great time together. He would cross his legs, and I'd come over and sit on his shoe and his ankle, and he'd raise it up and down and give me a ride. He became Uncle Guy to me. I remember going to prayer meeting. We used to sing a couple of songs on Wednesday night prayer meeting, and he'd be singing at the top of his lungs, praising God with his eyes toward the heavens. And then we'd start praying, and I'd look down the aisle, and I'd see Uncle Guy get off of his seat, kneel in front of his seat with his elbows on his chair, pouring out his heart with tears coming down his face, passionately praying for the people that needed prayer. He didn't have an easy life either. He had experiences. His wife had polio. I never knew her except on crutches. The week before Christmas uh, in 2007, I preached my dad's funeral. And after the service, we had the procession out to the cemetery. And I'm at the cemetery there looking over my dad's casket, which is hung over the open grave. And my gaze just goes to the sights right beyond, and there's Guy Madera, buried right next to where my dad is buried. And all of these pictures that I just painted for you came back to my head, and I see it. And, and I'm thinking, wow. Broadened my perspective, and it gave me a resolution in my heart to say, I want to live like Guy lived. This is the right way to live. This is what I want to do with my life. And that's what this intergenerational pollination can do for us. It hardens our resolve to walk with the Lord. We help each other. We develop together. So I want to leave you today with two challenges. The first challenge is, in your life experiences, can you do what David did? Cry out to God. I know most people do that anyway, but don't stop there. 
take a step back. Remember who God is in the middle of that. Do what the video showed. Even if you go to the scriptures and understand God is bigger than any difficulty, any experience that you go through. And allow that to bring hope to your heart so you can proclaim his goodness to everyone else, which will bring confidence into your heart and praise out of your lips. Would you determine to do that? And the second challenge is this. Could you be a guy Madeira to somebody else? He was my dad's mentor. When my dad got saved, he's the guy who took my dad under his wing, which is why we got to be such good friends. And as I stood at my dad's grave there, and I was thinking about that, the mentor, the mentoree, both walking with God. Because God used that cross-pollination. Could you be guy to somebody else? Let's stand and close in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for the illustration out of Psalm 71 that explains to us how to walk through the experiences of life that would prevent us from becoming angry old people. Lord, we want to be people who are satisfied in you and who minister to other people. So help us do this. Help us be a guy Madeira to someone else. But also, Lord, I know, no doubt, there are people in the room right now who are currently involved in a difficult experience like this. I pray you would be near to them. Strengthen them. Help them look to you. Meet each need they have. Bring them through this experience to the glory of God, that you could be exalted through their experience, and that they may feel peace, having been honored by you to have you in their lives. I pray that for everyone here. And so, God, we leave today recognizing we don't know what lies ahead, but you do. We can rest in your unchanging love for us. And so we go with that on our minds and praise on our lips. In Jesus' name, amen.